Um, also, I want to mention, if you're not part of the Shmuz WhatsApp Chizik group, three, four times a week we send out these short videos, about two, three minutes long. If you would like to participate, if you'd like to be a member of the Shmuz Chizik WhatsApp group and get these videos right to your phone, if you go to the shmuz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, you'll see on the top, you'll see a place to sign up. You'll also see some information coming soon about the new book, the uh, 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. Thank God. Baruch Hashem. It is now. Uh, it's finally in print. This is actually, you're looking here at the pre-publication print, but it's actually printed now. I just saw, I got videos of it. It's printed. It's <laughs> printed in, of all places, the Ukraine. Why the Ukraine, you want to know? Well, <clears throat> here's the story. China, as you know, is cheap. But if I print it in China, it would be on a slow boat from China. It would get here, I don't know, in six months from now. Who knows? Israel is also a very inexpensive place to, to print. They don't have paper for the next six months. So we were left with a few choices. Either pay a ton of money to have it printed over here or go overseas. Anyway, um, Ukraine was the winner. And uh, Feldheim really arranged it. I'm very grateful for them. They did a great job. But it's on a... Um, it's also on a boat, not a slow boat, but it'll be in a Mitzvah Shem. A few weeks, a little bit before Hanukkah, we'll have the actual copies in. Uh, it's actually, you can still get there on on Amazon, print on demand. We have some copies there also, but again, the, the real real copies will be in Mitzvah Shem shortly, uh, before, right before uh, Hanukkah. So I'm very, uh, I'm very, um, very excited, personally, very, very excited. At any time, uh, just I'd like to mention, you could type in questions. You have Q&A in the Q&A. You could type in questions. Also, at any time during the week, if you have questions you want me to address, they could be on the topic of the Shmuz or any other topic, please feel free to mail them into Rebbe at Shmuz.com. Rebbe at Shmuz.com. If you put question in the uh, header, so that way I'll be able to easily find it, that would be great. Uh, and that way I'm able to look it up. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm looking for those questions right now. And I had some questions someone asked before, but they didn't put in questions in the Q&A in the subject line, so I'm sorry to say I don't have it. Okay, but Mitzvah Shem will have it, uh, they'll be able to access that. Um, okay, there are also many uh, on the Shmooz app, as well as the Shmooz.com, there are quite a number of Shmoozim, also the Shmooz podcast. The Shmooz podcast is very extensive. You go to wherever you get your podcast. It has almost all the Shmuzim, the series. It certainly has the new, the Derech Hashem Shir, which is Wednesday night. That Derech Hashem Shir I give in my home for women, and it's uh, recorded, so that's also on the uh, it's on the Shmuz app, the Shmuz site, as well as the um, as well as the podcast. So you'll be able to access that. Uh, please avail yourself of it. If you're not on the Shmuz email list, then just please send a please subscribe to. Um, you could actually just, uh, on the website, you could do it, or you can send a please subscribe to Rebbe at theshmooze.com, R-E-B-B-E, at theshmooze.com. Um, also, if anyone is having trouble logging in at any time, please let me know. I know there were some technical difficulties, but I sincerely hope that we can we can make the Zoom uh, work because it's much more interactive, and I prefer it rather than people just only on Torah anytime. Torah anytime is great, but you can't from there they can't ask. So... Um, Right, okay. Okay, so in just a moment we will begin. And again, please feel free if you have any questions to put it in the Q&A at any time. And certainly when we're done, I'll ask you 
If you'd like to raise your hand and ask questions, you're certainly welcome to do that. Okay, let's uh, let's begin. Avram Avinu left Haran, he got to Canaan. Shortly thereafter, he went down to Mitzrayim, there was a famine in the land. He, the whole event with Tsar being taken, he comes back to Canaan and he settles there for quite a number of years. At a certain point, the Chumash tells us that there was a major world war. The world was dominated by initially by five kings, and there was another monarchy of, consisting of four kings. There was a war between these two groups, and the four kings vanquished one against the five kings, and these four kings were now effectively the rulers of the earth. In the process of winning this war, the four kings also conquered the city of Sdom, and a captive was taken, Lot was taken captive. Og, Melech saw this as his unique opportunity. Og, for many, many years, had coveted a certain woman, and he had no ability to get her. That woman was Sarah Imenu. The Gemara tells us that one of the four most beautiful women who ever lived was Sarah. And Og wished for her for many, many years, but he had no way to take her. But now he saw his opening. He realized that Lot is the nephew of Avram. He'll go tell Avram that Lot was captured. Lot, the altruistic, naive sort of person that he is, will go to war. Obviously, Avram would be killed in this war against four major kings, at which point the valiant Og would go to Sarah, rescue her from her poor widowhood. He would rescue the damsel in distress, and he had his plan, he had his mission. He sets out the, the public, he sets out to Avram, he tells him the news, and in fact, by Yarek Eschenichav, Avram took either 318 of his students, or he took Eliezer, and he went to war. Now he waged war against these four kings, and he waged a bitter, bitter battle. You know, sometimes agadata are difficult to understand. We're all famous, we're all familiar with the famous Chazal, that Avram you know, took sand, he threw the sand, and it turned into arrows. And the morale explains to us that that is a fallacy if you take that at first surface level. It doesn't mean that Avram took sand and threw it and it turned into arrows. He fought a bitter battle, mortal combat with extreme danger, but he won. He and his students, he and his warriors won, and it was such a miraculous victory. Let me give you a mushal. It's almost like, oh, I don't know, it's almost like he took sand and threw it and it turned into arrows. That's a mushal, a parable, to describe how unique the victory was, but it was a very, very dangerous, and very, very bitter battle, and in fact, Avram won the war and conquered these four kings, freed his nephew Lot, and sent Lot on his way. And the events would be impressive, and the events would be unusual, and we'd see a level of Avram Venus but it's the summation of the events that are most eye-opening. After this occurs, Hashem appears to Avram with a message. Altira Avram, do not fear Avram, I'll protect you, you have much, much reward. And Rashi explains why Hashem appeared to Avram and what the message was. And says Hashem to Avram, do not worry about your reward. You see, Avram had a fear. Rashi explains that Avram's fear was, maybe I received my reward for all of my righteousness. 
After all, Hashem brought a miracle. For me to win that war against these four major kings was a tremendous miracle. Maybe I was paid back for all of my righteousness with that miracle. And Hashem says, no, don't worry. You have much, much reward. But I'd like to focus this question for a minute just so we could understand what's going on over here. And the Kliyaka adds one line from the Medrash. Avram Avinu was afraid, Maybe I received the reward of all of my righteousness. I have nothing left in the world to come. That was Avram's fear. Hashem appears to him in a dream and says, Do not worry, Avram. You have a tremendous amount of reward waiting for you in the world to come. Now, I'd like to ask the obvious question on this Rashi. Number one, Avram Avinu did not go to war because he was bored. He did not go to war for pleasure. He did not go to war because he was looking for the booty to become famous or rich. He went to war altpidion nefashos. His nephew was captured. He went for a mitzvah at the great, great danger, the sacrifice potentially of his life. He went to do a mitzvah. How could he possibly think that because Hashem saved him, he used the, the reward of all of his righteousness when he went to do the Ratzon Hashem, to do a mitzvah? But even more than that, Avram Avinu at this stage in his life was deep, deep into his 80s. At this point we're talking decades and decades of living Hashem's word. From the age of three he recognized Hashem, and from that moment on, all he focused on was serving Hashem and doing what Hashem wants. And he converted tremendous amounts of people to the ways of Hashem. He spent decades and decades serving Hashem with total righteousness. How is it possible that he thinks because Hashem did a miracle? Okay, let's grant. Let's say Hashem did a miracle. Very nice, very impressive. How could Avram you know, possibly think that he used up all of his reward? I have nothing waiting for me in the world to come. Everything has been used up. How could he make such a blunder? How could he so miscalculate to assume that he used up all his reward? And Hashem has to say, no, 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 don't worry, you still have a lot of reward left. question is, how could Avram Avinu think that way? And to appreciate the answer to this, I'd like to share with you a mushal. The Chavaz gives us a parable. He says, imagine the following. Imagine you have a man who at 35 years of age loses his sight. And now he lives in total blackness. He's a fighter, so he learns how to recreate a life, but he lives in absolute darkness, and that's how he navigates, that's how he goes about his life. And for 10 years, he's living in absolute blindness, absolute blackness. At a certain point, he finds out about a medical procedure that's experimental, not at all guaranteed, but it's possible that they might be able to reconnect the optic nerve he consults with his friends, consults with his family. He decides to undergo the operation. They wheel him into the operating room, 10-hour-long operation, and he's beginning to come out of anesthesia, and he's ready to open his eyes. He's now ready to find out whether he'll live the rest of his life in utter blackness or regain his sight. He clenches his eyes. He's ready to open. He opens the Nurse, nurse, nurse. Nurse comes running. No, no, wait, wait, wait. It takes three days for the sutures to, to heal. You have to wait. He waits 72 hours, each hour like an eternity. Finally, after the third day, the doctors gather at the foot of his bed, his family all around. The nurse pulls off one bandage, pulls off a second bandage. He opens his eyes and he sees colors, texture, 
spectrums. He looks out the window, he sees the sky, he sees the grass, the trees, he sees the faces of his loved ones he hasn't seen in years. With tears in his eyes, he says, Doctor, doctor, what could I ever do to to repay you for this tremendous gift of sight? Explains the Chavaz of that emotion, that elation we are supposed to experience on a daily basis. We have a string of brachas that we say each morning, one of which is pokeach ivrim, Hashem, you grant sight to the blinded. You granted me all the gifts that I have, mobility, dexterity, zokiv kufufim, Hashem, you write in the crooked. We say 16 brachas thanking Hashem for all of the gifts that we are given. And we human beings are a bit of a unique creed. We could have gifts for years and years and never even acknowledge it, never notice it, not even realize what we have. The minute something happens, a little hiccup, and then it's Hashem, why me? Of the seven and a half billion people on the planet, why did you choose me? But until that moment, there wasn't even a recognition of it being a bracha, not even a recognition of it being a goodness. And the simple reality is that we have untold amount of pleasures, of benefits, we have sights, we have aromas, we have textures, we have flavors, we have tremendous amount of things that we should appreciate, and yet we don't. And the Chavaz of Ovas explains why not. The why not is because we were born into the lap of luxury. He says, I'll give you a mushal. Imagine you had two brothers. These two brothers are teenagers, and one day they're having a discussion, and one brother says to his other, you know, our father... What a fantastic person. Everything he does, he does for our good. He has these special tutors and special running programs. And everything, he's so concerned for our good. The other brother looks at him and says, oh, I don't know about the old man. I think he's doing it for his honor. He's trying to live through us. I don't know about him. What's the difference between brother one and brother two? You see, the second brother was born into the lap of luxury. The first brother was adopted. He was adopted from the streets when he was eight or nine, and he knows what it's like to sleep on a park bench. And when his adopted father took him into this home, everything is a luxury. Everything is phenomenal, and he appreciates it. Explains the Chavaz Vavos, we are much like that kid who was born into the lap of luxury. Since I've opened my eyes, all I've ever seen is beauty, magnificence. I've seen a world replete with wonder, but it's always been there. Colors and dimensions, textures, different things that my eye sees. I'm so accustomed to it that it loses its wonder. And one of the things that a person needs to do is retrain himself and learn to appreciate the riches that we have. Because if you don't learn to appreciate it, you might as well not have it. And oftentimes it's true that if you don't appreciate what you have, You effectively don't have it. If you're not appreciative of it, if you're not focused on it, then it might as well not be there. And you could have such wealth, such ashiras, never realize it, never understand it. And if you don't do that, what you are is basically poor. Now, I was a high school rebbe for many years. And I would hug the guys on a regular basis about the importance of appreciation, and especially and the importance of appreciation to your parents. You want to tell me appreciating what Hashem does to me? Listen, all right, maybe Hashem's far distant, but what about your parents? 
And I would go on and on. Look what your parents have done for you. They, who fed you when you were a little kid? Who taught you how to write? Who taught you how to tie your shoes? Who pays your, pays your tuition? Who pays your camp? Who pays for everything? And I would say to these guys on and on for 40 minutes, 50 minutes, going on through the long list of everything that their parents do for them. Okay. After one such session, a fellow comes over to me after and says, Rebbe, I get it, I get it. My parents do so much for me. But, but that's their job. When they decided to have me, that's their job. They have to do it. So why do I owe them anything? I wanted to grab this young man by his shirt collars. Because while it's true that if you have a child, you have an obligation to take care of the child, that's on the side of the giver. You as the child are the recipient of so much good. And if you don't train yourself to appreciate it, and you have the sense of entitlement, it's coming to me more and more and more, not only are you a kafoy tov, you're a poverty-stricken individual, because effectively you have nothing. You have nothing because you don't appreciate it, haven't trained yourself, and it might as well not be there. Now, interestingly enough, the Chavaz of Ovas tells us something very, very profound from this concept. He says, do you ever notice there's not a mention of Olam Haba in the Torah? Search Torah Shebek Sav, you will not find a mention of Olam Haba. And he explains there are a number of reasons for this, one of which is and because the Torah is a book of justice. The Torah is a book of mishpat, and therefore Olam Haba doesn't belong in it. Why? Explains the Chavaz if a human being were ever to make a reckoning, were ever to make a chesben, a calculation with Hashem, and what Hashem has done for me, versus what I've done for Hashem, nothing you could ever do, nothing you could ever spend your life doing would ever begin to compare to the smallest minutia that Hashem did for you. Number one, Hashem created you. Number two, Hashem showers you with gifts and constant things and constant enjoyments and constant benefits. And Hashem watches God, the creator of the heavens and earth, watches over you. He's intimately involved in your life, protecting you, guiding you throughout your life. What could you ever do? Explains the Chavaz of Olvas, if you spent your entire life serving Hashem with absolute diligence, it wouldn't begin to repay a ten thousandth of what you owe Hashem. Therefore, Olam Haba is not written in the Torah because Olam Haba is not deserved. It's earned, but not deserved. It's earned based on what you do, but it's not deserved. And the Torah is a book of mishpat, a book of justice. And in a system of justice, of din, you deserve nothing. You see, planet Earth is a five-star hotel. But this five-star hotel comes with tremendous amenities. <clears throat> if you walk into this five-star hotel and expect everything, I expect room service, I expect gourmet meals, I expect the pampered lifestyle, and I think it's all free, you're making a mistake. You see, in reality, there's a bill that's racking up. Every minute that you live, every breath that you breathe, there's a bill. You owe, you owe, you owe. I owe Hashem for this, and I owe Hashem for that, I owe Hashem for that. And if you'd like to understand what we have as our claim, and that we deserve the world to come, I'll give you a very simple mushal. Imagine that your father-in-law takes you to Sedona, Arizona for Pesach. A beautiful Pesach program. It's a five-star joint. It's the classy of the classy. As it turns out, work is going to kind of rough. You've been fighting with your wife, and you're depressed 
you're like, you don't do a thing, you barely leave the hotel room the entire Pesach. Okay, at the end of the <coughs> nine days, your father-in-law goes to the manager of the program and says, Sir, I don't quibble, it's not my style, <coughs> but I want you to know, my son-in-law spent the whole time <coughs> in the room, didn't even show up at the golf course, wasn't at a single gala kiddish. Normally I wouldn't say this, but I'm not paying more than 50%, he barely got anything from the program. Needless to say, the program manager would say, Sir, I'm sorry, <coughs> you signed up, you received, you didn't enjoy it, that's your business, <coughs> but you took it, you were there. Explains the Chavaz of Avos, that's why the Torah doesn't mention Olam Haba, <coughs> because you're the recipient of so much good. If you learn to appreciate it, great, but if not, you're still the recipient, and what we receive on a daily basis, an unending stream of good, is coming in, coming in, coming in, <coughs> we owe, we owe, we owe, and if we don't appreciate it, and we don't understand it, the Torah does, therefore <clears throat> the world to come, yes, it's earned, but it's not deserved. And I believe that's exactly the answer to Avram Avinu. See, Avram Avinu opened his eyes in the morning and said, Wow, look what Hashem does to me, Hashem created me, and gave me a sense of touch, sense of feeling, and sense of sight. And look how Hashem guides me, and look how Hashem guards me, and look how Hashem is always there for me. How much I owe Hashem, there was no entitlement because there wasn't a sense of it's kumtsamir, it's coming to me. He felt such a sense of how could I ever pay back Hashem for all that He does to me, and that He felt that He was so far behind the eight ball, so much in debt, and that if Hashem did one thing, Hashem did this miracle, surely there's nothing left for me. I have nothing left in the world to come. And the reason why Avram Avinu felt that was because he doesn't have the spoiled brat syndrome. He doesn't have the entitlement syndrome of the kid who was born with the silver spoon in his mouth. He doesn't feel everything's coming to me. I owe, no, I owe nothing to nobody. He doesn't have the attitude of that fellow in my high school shear. My parents have to do it. They brought me into the world. Avram Vino had a tremendous sense of wow. Look what I have. Look at my riches. Look at this astonishing world. And all of it is gifted to me. What did I do to deserve it? Nothing. And what I owe Hashem is, un, is boundless. What could I have ever done to repay Hashem? And therefore he felt that he owes Hashem, owes Hashem. And if Hashem actually did a miracle, it's not possible that I've done more than that. There's nothing left for me in the world to come. And I believe that's exactly what Avram Avinu's fear was. Nevertheless, Hashem said to him, Altira Avram, Schar Chahar Maod. Your reward is great. There's a tremendous amount of reward that's awaiting you in the world to come. What did Hashem answer to Avram? And I heard my Rebbe, the Roshiva Zatzal, explain with a very simple mushal. Imagine the following. Imagine the boss calls you in one day and says, Listen, fellow, you know that big account in Texas? Big account, I know that big, of course. It's 50% of our business. Well, here's the story. The competition is fierce. One of our competitors has been down there trying to woo him. I need you to go down to Texas. I need you to take out the executive team, wine them, dine them, whatever you got to do, you got to secure this account. Okay, you get on a plane, and you meet with the executive team, you take them out, and you speak with them, you take them to a nice restaurant, you take them to drinks, you spend a tremendous amount of time and energy, and in fact, you're successful, and you come back, boss, they sign for another five years. Okay, you don't think much about it, and next paycheck you open up, and you see zero balance. Instead of a paycheck, you see a negative, and you bring it into the boss, and you say, but what's this? Boss says, well, listen, remember we went down to Texas? Yeah. You know, that was an expensive flight, yeah. And, you know, you went out to that restaurant, yeah. And it was wine, right? 
and it was a bar bill, you know, that amounted to a lot of money. So naturally, somebody's got to pay for it. Um, you got to pay for it. I got to pay for it? Boss, I was doing that for you. I was doing that for the company. I was on the boss's expense account. You can't take that off of my bill. Explain to Rashiva Zatzal, that's exactly what Hashem said to Avram Avinu. <clears throat> yes, you benefited from this world tremendously. There's no question. But every breath that you breathed was to serve Hashem. Every time you ate, <clears throat> it was to have energy to serve Hashem. Any pleasure that you took from this world, <clears throat> to serve Hashem, everything you did, you did on the boss's expense account. You didn't take any pleasures for yourself. <clears throat> you didn't take anything of this world for you. Everything that you took from this world was only to better serve your Creator. That's on the boss's expense account. That doesn't come off of your schar. And that's a my cheshman, says Hashem, scharcha harbe ma'od. And I believe this chovos of havovos is very, very eye-opening. Because what it means to us in simple terms is, any pleasure that you take in this world that's not to serve Hashem might well be coming off your olam haba. Now listen, we all need to live, you need to dress well, you need to drive a nice car, you need to live in a reasonable house, you have to be a mensch, you have to be a ben Torah. So there are certain things that are normal, and there are certain luxuries that a person needs. You have to eat well, you have to take care of yourself, and those things are all fine. But once you go over the limit, and once you build the palatial manner that really is beyond what's expected, and once you make the wedding that really is too luxurious, once you wear the watch that's really not so needed because it costs $20,000, unlike my AMS Fit $49 watch, which tells time a lot better than your $20,000 Rolex. But once you start engaging in luxuries for you, and no one understands you're involved in a very, very dangerous pursuit, you might well be using your world to come up in this world. Because any luxury that you use to serve Hashem, any luxury that you take to be a better Ever Hashem, and to serve Hashem better, is absolutely on Hashem's account. That's on the boss's expense account. It's free. It doesn't come off your world to come. But any luxury that you take from me, for my honor and my pleasure and for my interests, that is not so simple and very likely it's coming off your world to come. And folks, I'll be honest with you, I've been to some men, very, very expensive weddings. Very expensive. Very, very expensive. But I don't mean expensive here. I mean expensive in the world to come. And because don't tell me you're making a $200,000 wedding because, you know, I have to make a balabatish wedding. And don't tell me you're living in that mansion. And Baruch Hashem, we all live well. But I've been to some houses that are really, I don't know about it. And you have to look at everything you do, and you have to ask yourself that simple question. Am I doing it to serve Hashem? It's great, it's kosher, it's free. Am I doing it to serve me? Uh-oh. And that means in plain, simple language, you buy an expensive treadmill. But you're buying it to be fit. Listen, I gotta be able to learn and daven and I gotta, that's great. It's on the boss's expense account. If you buy that very same treadmill because, hey, listen, I wanna be buff and, you know, come on. You know who I, you know? That is a very expensive purchase. But not in monetary format, not in dollars and cents in your world to come. Because any luxury that you take in this world not to serve your creator <clears throat> comes off your world to come. And it's a very, very expensive proposition.
And therefore, I'd like to share with you a very, very wise piece of advice. If you would like to acquire your Olam Haba, and number one, try to avoid luxuries, because luxuries are very expensive. First of all, they're damaging to you spiritually, and even if they're not damaging to you, they damage your kids and your family. They're really, really not something to engage in. But regardless of that, I'd like to share with you a piece of advice that the Chovas of Ovas shares with us, if you would like to acquire your world to come. He says you could have two people, two people, man A and man B. Man A could be a tzaddik, with midos like a malach, totally involved in learning, totally involved in chesed, totally a tzaddik of incredible proportions, a man who you'd assume is wow. And man B is nowhere near who man A is. His dominating is okay, his learning is whatever, his chesed, just, but, and yet man B might tower over man A in the world to come. And the Chovah Zavavah explains to us why. He says, I'll give you a mushal. Imagine you have two merchants. Merchant A takes a certain amount of capital, buys merchandise, and sells it for ten times the profit. Brilliant! Ten times his initial starting money. Merchant B also <clears throat> takes a certain amount of capital. He invests it, and he sells the merchandise, and he doubles the amount that he started with. Man A, ten times the return. Man B, only twice. No comparison, right? Until you look at the starting capital. Man A began with $10,000. Okay. He times ten. He now has $90,000 of profit. Okay, a tidy profit, but it's not earth-shaking. Man B began with $5 million. And when he multiplied that by just two, he now has $5 million profit. While man B only doubled his return, he was working with capital that was so much greater, the return therefore is so much greater, explains the Chovos man A, in the world to come, he's a tzaddik, he worked on his midos, he worked on his davening, he worked on his learning, but all he did was perfect himself. Man B may not have reached anywhere near that level, but man B brought many others along with him. Man B helped other people, man B was makar of other people, because of man B, many other Jews served Hashem better. And explains the Chavos if you get someone else to serve Hashem, number one, they get reward for their mitzvahs. But number two, since you were the catalyst, and since you were the cause, you get the reward for it as well. And even though man A might have sterling midos, like a malach, he might be nowhere near man B, And because man B didn't just work for himself. Man B had many, many people on his payroll. And man B had many other Jews who he helped, who he created, who he made. And for all of their lives, what they did was attributed to him. And man B might tower over man A. And I'd like to share with you a mushal because I got to see this in a way that's quite eye-opening. I was a Rebbe in Rochester and I needed some legal work. And it happened to be... I had a friend of mine from the old days, a buddy of mine who I grew up with, and he was a high-powered lawyer in New York City. I made an appointment, I met with him, I discussed the situation, and he said, listen, for you, an old buddy from the old days, I'll gladly do it with an extremely reduced rate, and he really reduced his rate dramatically, just $200 an hour. 
Okay, very nice. Now, I'm Jewish, um, and every Jew is an accountant, so I was doing the math. Now, this is an extremely uh, discounted rate that he gave me. Okay, he has a rent in Manhattan, an expensive office, and he has one secretary, no more. Uh, so I did the math. In today's dollars, he's making about between four and $500,000 a year after taxes. Okay, not Ashira's, but most of us can manage to get by on four or $500,000 a year after taxes. Okay, why do I share that with you? Because as you know, Bill Gates, who recently got divorced, went through an interesting lifespan. Bill Gates was a dropout of college. He started Microsoft Corporation. And in a very short time, he went from being a sophomore in college to being an extremely, extremely wealthy individual. Now, he's not a showy guy, and he doesn't do the fancy cars and all that kind of stuff, certainly not back then. And he was beginning to get a lot of bad PR because people would approach him for various charities, and he would write a $100 check $1,000 check, but he was becoming an extremely, extremely wealthy, powerful man <clears throat> writing very small checks. But not because he was meager, but because he was a simple guy wearing the brown sweater, not not a showy, flashy guy. Okay. In any case, at a certain point, Bill Gates decided to open the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they began this foundation with an initial contribution of 24 billion dollars. Clearly not a cheap skate, not a meager guy. And began the the philanthropist with twenty-four billion dollar donation. Okay. Now why is that number interesting? And because I did the math. Let's assume my friend, the high powered lawyer, decided that he was going to start his own foundation. And he wanted to match what Bill and Melinda Gates had in funding. If he were to take every penny he was to earn for every year, the full $500,000, it would take him 48,000 years to amass the kind of wealth that Bill Gates began the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation with. Because you see, Bill Gates had a major advantage. When you're a dentist, you can drill, fill, and bill, but you only have two hands. You're one person. When you have a corporation, when you have 20,000 employees in a marketplace that really needs your product, you're exponentially larger. Your small actions are increased dramatically. And the reason why Bill Gates was able to donate $24 billion is because he had an army working for him. Microsoft Corporation is an army, an entire army working for him. And I believe that's exactly what the Chavaz of Ovas are saying. If you want to acquire Olam Haba and you're going to get in on your own ticket, I don't know. How much have you done? How much have you accomplished? And keep in mind, a lot of what you might be using up in this world might be coming off your Olam Haba. Explains the Chavaz of Ovas, I'll give you advice. And don't focus on yourself only. Yes, you have to work on yourself. Yes, you have to learn Daman, do Staka Chesed. I got that. But at the same time, keep your eye open and see if you could help other Jews. Because if you help another Jew grow, if because of you they learn more, they daven more, they're a better person, all of that is credited to them and is credited to you as well. And you have to learn to put people on your payroll. You have to learn to get people working for you because if you're going to go on your own ticket alone, it's unlikely you're going to succeed. 
And again, I got to see this in real life in my own world. As I mentioned, I was a high school Rebbe for 15 years. And there were many times when I felt as a high school Rebbe that there might be better ways for me to use my time. You know, things, important things like digging ditches or maybe uh, shining shoes. Because there would be many, many times that I'd work on sheer, prepare, prepare, and I'd be talking to myself. You know, the red dot? And the red dot is when you prepare a schmooze for one guy. You want a message to penetrate this guy's heart. And you work on it, and you prepare it, and you prepare it. And you say the schmooze. And he comes over to you after and says, Rebbe, that was a great schmooze. Except you see the red dot on his forehead. Because his head was down on the desk for the 40 minutes of the schmooze. And you know that he wasn't there. And again, during the course of 15 years, or many, many a moment, when I realized that I could likely be doing more productive things, more productive things like putting posts into the ground. In any case, Hashem is fair, and I believe Hashem pays back exactly for what's worthy, exactly what you deserve, and I think I got paid back for much of my time. I'll explain to you what happened. I gave, I was speaking Friday night in, um, in for NCSY on Shabbos, and this kid came over to me with one of these incredibly complex haircuts, stepped haircut, more earrings that I could count, and he introduced himself, Mike, and we had a conversation, we were talking, and it seems he's very interesting, he was a public school kid, but he was interested in Judaism, so we were talking, we had a nice conversation, and we made up to learn Mesil Sharm. Okay, so once a week, we'd learn, he'd come to my house, we'd learn, he became friendly, became friendly with my wife, and he'd come once a week, and we kept this on for a good good amount of time. I'm not sure what happened exactly, but after a certain while, we kind of lost contact, he no longer came, and I sort of didn't hear from him. One Shabbos afternoon, I'm walking into the yeshiva for Mincha, and on the street, the other way, I see, Mike, hey, good job, so Rabbi, how you doing, Mike, good, how am I doing, okay, now there's Mike wearing his jeans, his t-shirt, and his stepped earring, stepped haircut, earrings, and all that good stuff, and I say, hey, Mike, what's doing, good, <clears throat> what's what's up, I, well, I just got a full full scholarship to Indiana University, I said, that's great, but he wasn't smiling, I said, why aren't you smiling? Well, I don't know, I'm not sure, I don't know, I don't know. Anyway, I saw there was something troubling him, and I realized that it would take me probably hours or weeks to get it out of him. So I said, come, let's go to my house. And so I brought him to my house, and I sat him down. He sat down with my wife, and in about 20 minutes, she got it out of him. Basically, he got this full scholarship to Indiana University. His parents were ecstatic. He didn't want to go. He wanted to go to Israel to learn. And so my wife said, fine, go to Israel and learn. Why don't you? I can't do it. I, yes, you can. Uh, bottom line is, I made up, that's it, he's going. And in fact, he went to Israel to learn. And he checked into uh, to Ar Sameach. And he checked into Ar Sameach. Fast forward a couple of years later, he, I get the call. He's marrying a Yerushalmi girl who doesn't speak a word of English. He wears tefillin all day. He's learning in Rav Zilberman's Kolel. He became the real deal. And I've met with Mike many a time. When I go to Israel on a regular basis, I meet with him. And a certain while back, I stopped talking to him and learning because I was getting like embarrassed already. So I knew to kind of go, go easy. And at a certain point, I said to myself, now wait a minute. What if I hadn't been walking down that street on Shabbos? What if I didn't meet Mike? What would have happened? Mike would have gone the way of most secular Jews, Indiana University, full scholarship. He would have joined the 
Holocaust of the American scene, and he never would have been heard from again. But right now, he has an entire family, children are married, living in Yerushalayim in the old city, wearing till all day, and his children going in his way, and only for one reason. <clears throat> because my wife said that line, <clears throat> she asked him, why don't you just go to Israel? Yeah, you can, yes, you can. And he turned around. But that pivotal moment in his life was credited strictly to the fact we had a relationship. <clears throat> my wife turned him around, and I said to myself, wow, he's on my payroll. There's no question if it weren't for my wife, and I, he wouldn't be there. And it means for eternity, everything that he accomplishes is credited back. And again, Hashem is fair, Hashem pays back your work you do, and you find your mic. You find your person on your payroll. And my friends, if you would like to gain your portion of the world to come, you have to be wise. You have to find people. It doesn't mean you have to be a curve expert. It doesn't mean you have to be the most dynamic personality in the world. You find a younger fellow who needs some help. You find a young woman who's in trouble. You find someone who needs assistance, and you help them, and you change them, and you bring them back on the path. Bingo! You bought yourself a person on your payroll for eternity. And it doesn't even have to be spectacular things like that. It doesn't even have to be changing a person's life. I'll give you another example that I find just astonishing. Any yeshiva, any shul you go to, you'll see these ashiotzer cards, ashiotzer plaques, with the pictures drawn... And if you notice, you'll see on the bottom, it comes from a certain address, Wallenberg's Drive in Muncie. And I'd like to explain to you what it's about. Someone here in Muncie decided this is crazy. And people say Ashiatsar many times a day, and they don't have Kavana. They just... And we got to stop it. So they printed up placards, they printed up cards, and they began a campaign, they began giving out yeshivas and shuls, and all of a sudden... And people started taking notice. I know myself many a time. I'll stop there, and I see the word stop in for at least 20 seconds, and I'll say the bracha, looking at the pictures, and my ashiyotzer is different. Every time I make an ashiyotzer properly, it's credited to me. But it's also credited to the person who was the catalyst for that. And it's not just ashiyotzer. There's a man who lives in Muncie who I believe is one of the great holy Jews of our time. I hope he doesn't hear this, because maybe he'll be a little embarrassed, but his name is Michael Rothschild. And Michael Rothschild was a regular balabas, a regular guy working, and he decided this is crazy, this Lush and Hara. People don't even know, learn the Allah, they don't know anything. It's absolutely unacceptable. And he started <coughs> making sure that people gave sure about it, and he started making sure people had material, and he began the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation, and right now he has a factory when I go down there, I'm astounded. Last time I asked him, which was a number of years ago, he had 33 full-time employees, a machine, pumping out information about not speaking Lashon Hara. And I believe in the Klaisal today, there's much more awareness of Lashon Hara because of the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. But that was one man's vision, one man's dream, and look what he changed, and look what he accomplished. And if you want to talk about one man's dream, if you are watching this on Torah anytime, you're watching an interesting reality. About maybe 18 years ago, I don't remember exactly how many years ago, I'm giving a shmooz in Queen, Queens in Chavetz Chaim. I gave it every Monday night. And this fellow, Shimon Koyakov, comes over and says, do you mind if I videotape it? I videotape it. Go ahead, stand in the back, videotape knock yourself out. So he videotapes it. What are you doing? I don't know, I want to, I, I feel the shirim are good, I, I don't want them to go to waste. 
Okay, <clears throat> so he does it, and he tells me he has this website. What's the website name? Torah Anytime. Okay, knock yourself out. <clears throat> My friends, if you look at Torah Anytime today, they boast about having more Torah learned than any yeshiva in the world. We're talking about millions and millions and millions of hours a year. And the amount of Rabbanim, the amount of speakers, the amount of Shurim is incredible. And just look at the list. And look at the list and look at the tremendous breadth. And look how many people grow and change. And because one man had a vision. Shimon Koyakov said, it's crazy. We have Rabbanim giving Shurim. And yes, people hear it, but so many more people could benefit. <clears throat> Why don't we videotape it? Why don't we put it on a, on a website? He had this vision. He had this dream. And he accomplished worlds for eternity and he's changing people's lives and if you want to buy your world to come you have to be wise you have to find your mitzvah and you have to find your mission and again it doesn't have to be grand and glorious but if you see someone who needs help and you see someone who you can assist and you could help them and you could change them if they daven better, if they learn better if they have better shalom bias and they're a better person certainly if you see a kid who needs help and you can change them you can help them with their self-esteem. You can help them with self-image. You're making an ashama for life. If you help a kid deal with his issues, with his problems, and it could be a kid, it could be a co-worker, it could be a friend, it could be whoever it may be. If you help them, you're assisting them, you change them, they're on your payroll. But you have to be very astute. You have to keep your eyes open. You have to look for your mic. You have to find people to put on your payroll. You have to ask yourself, what could I do to help others? Now let me be very clear. Really, your intention should be lishma. Your intention should be, I want to serve Hashem, I want to help others, I want to be like my Creator. Hashem is the mate of the ultimate benefactor, the ultimate giver. I want to be like Hashem. What could I do to help? But you have to recognize that it takes an awful lot of growth to really, really learn to be completely other self-centered, to be focused on other people's needs. And there's nothing wrong, certainly in the beginning, and the beginning, I mean the first couple of decades of you doing this, focus on the fact, yes, I want to help them, yes, I want to do my best, but I know I'm buying a portion for myself in the world to come. If you were Avram Avinu, you probably wouldn't have that kavana. You'd be totally the Shema, what can I do to help? But we're not yet there. When you turn 80, when you turn 90, you can work on being totally the Shema. Right now, there's nothing wrong with being aware that I'm buying my world to come. Again, my main focus is I'm using that to help motivate me, to help drive me. I want to be like Hashem. I want to be a mative. But there's nothing wrong with being aware of the fact that you're also helping yourself to a tremendous extent. I think there is a tremendous lesson to learn from Avram Avinu. When Avram Avinu went to war against those four malachim, he had a very real fear. His fear was Hashem... You did a miracle for me. And why did he feel that he used up all of his world to come? Because every day of his life, Avram Avinu opened his eyes and said, look what I'm the recipient of. Look what Hashem's doing for me. Look what Hashem's giving to me. I owe, I owe, I owe. There's no sense of entitlement. Unlike the two brothers, the brothers who's brought up in the lap of luxury, and the adopted brother appreciated what he had. Avram Avinu was like the adopted brother. He recognized how much he received, recognized how much he owes Hashem, and thought, what could I ever do to repay you? We have tremendous bracha. Like that blind man who opens his eyes after 10 years, we each open our eyes every morning. 
and was supposed to say that string of brachas with an outpouring of emotion and tremendous joy in my heart. Hashem, what could I ever do to repay you? And that sense should bring me also a sense of wealth, but at the same time a sense of that I owe to Hashem. And because Avram had this incredible sense of what could I ever do to pay back Hashem, when Hashem did a miracle for him, Avram said, Oy vey, I've used up all of my reward, there's nothing left. To which Hashem said, no, uh, don't worry, Avram. Why? And because everything you did, you did for me. You're on the boss's expense account. If I fly down to Dallas on the boss's expense account and I spend money to take out a client, that's not on my cheshben, it's on the company's cheshben. Hashem said to Avram, every pleasure that you took, everything that you did was only to better serve me. That doesn't come off of your cheshben. And again, the principle is that any pleasure you take, because you have to be a mensch, you have to be an Ever Hashem, is free. The minute you start taking pleasures beyond that, it comes off your world to come, and it can be very, very expensive. But regardless, even if you lived your life properly, and you didn't take any extra pleasures, and you only used every moment to serve Hashem, explains the Chavazavas, it's not so simple that you're going to get the front row in Ganeiden. Because he explains to us again, two people, one the great Sadik, with Midos like a Malach, and the second man nowhere near him. But the first man was only working for himself. The second man had many, many people in his employ. It's like he comes into the marketplace with $5 million and just doubles it. Not such a great, brilliant businessman, but when you take $5 million and double it, you have $5 million of profit. Explains the Chavaz of if you want to acquire your world to come, and don't assume you're entitled to anything. The world to come is earned, but it's not deserved. And if you really want to guarantee yourself a seat, and make sure that you take others on your payroll. Make sure that you get other people working for you. Because if you get them to learn, you get them to daven, you get them to do a mitzvah better, and you get them to have a better marriage, to be a better parent, to be a better person, that helps them, they benefit, and you benefit as well. And again, explains that the only guaranteed ticket into the world to come. And I want to close with one last observation. It was a number of years ago, and I was in Kugan Hills, standing at the doorstep of a Kirov organization. And one of the principals in the organization said to me something very interesting. He said, do you know that we made over 1,200 bali tshuva? 1,200 Bali Tshuva we made. Now, I wasn't alert enough at the time, but had I been fully acute, alert, and astute, I would have fainted on the spot. I'll explain to you why. I walk into Shul Friday night, and I sing L'Chadodi. Hopefully I sing properly, maybe even the right Kavana, but it's one voice. When this man walks into Shul on Friday night, you hear a chorus of 1,200 voices because they're Bali Tshuva because of him. But it's not just 1,200 voices, and it's 1,200 families. And those 1,200 families have children, and those children have children, and those children have children, and on and on and on, all credited to the one who is the catalyst. Because every mitzvah that they do, yes, it's credited to them, but he was the cause. His organization did it, he and his partner began it. The schusim are incredible beyond description. And when you realize that, you begin to understand the power of putting other people on your payroll. You understand the power 
of bringing another Jew with you. You recognize what you could accomplish. You realize what you can do. You can do for others and also for yourself. But if you really want to make it in the world to come, you have to be like your Creator. All that Hashem wants to do is for others to help. Hashem created the whole world to give. If you want to be like Hashem, you have to focus on that. And when you do that, number one, you grow, you accomplish. And number two, you gain an Olam Haba much greater than you could ever begin to imagine because you have so many other people on your payroll. May Hashem grant us the wisdom and the capacity to put this into practice. And now I'd like to open the floor for questions. I went a little bit longer than I should have or wanted to, but I feel very passionate about this um, about this topic. Um, who was that person? Rabbi Portnoy and Rabbi Turk from the uh, Jewish Heritage Center in Kewan Hills. Um, truly amazing work that they're doing. Um, okay, but now what I'd like to do is open the floor to questions. Please feel free to raise your hand or you can type in the question if you're shy. You're more than welcome to type in the question. Before I, before I even take questions, I do want to mention a couple of very important things. Number one, the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make. Mirza Hashem is coming out Hanukkah. We'll have a copies in. They're being printed now. So if you'd like to receive a copy, it's been Chaz uh, and We already had about maybe a thousand copies out. I sent them to marriage therapists, Chassan and Kala teachers, people in the field, because I wanted to get some sort of pre, pre-press. The, the, resu- the feedback has been, Chaz has been amazing. I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I love the book, I want to buy, can I get it, can I buy? And again, these are professionals, people in the field. So if you'd like a copy, um, the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, again, it'll be in the stores, Hanukkah time, you can either in the stores or theschmooze.com, just a little while from now. Um, so I just want to mention ahead of time. I also want to mention that the uh, Schmooze Chizit WhatsApp group, <clears throat> three, four times a week, we send out these short, very inspirational videos if you'd like to be a member, if you'd like to get it, go to the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, and on the top you'll see a schmooze WhatsApp group. You just click it, and it'll put you in the uh, the list, and you'll get sent to your phone. you get these videos three, four times a week. Again, just go to the schmooze.com, and the top you'll see a schmooze WhatsApp chizit group. Just click it, and it'll put you into the uh, into the sign-up. Um, okay, now let's take some questions. Okay, Avram... I haven't heard from you in a while. Shalom Aleichem. Hi. Okay. How's Rabbi? Good, good, good. Thank God. Thank God. And even my voice, Baruch not too Hashem. bad. Baruch Hashem. Speaking Baruch of Hashem. Um, interesting question. Um, we learned from our, we seem, we seem to learn from our Rubinu that, um, that the, uh, that, that when you have Akhtas Archim, comes before Hashem. Charlie is, um, how did our Rubinu know it? Ah, excellent question. Excellent question. Right? <laughs> what, what Avram is referring to is Hashem came to visit Avram. Avram was a chola, was, a, was sick. <laughs> and and according to Rashi, Avram said, Please, Hashem, please wait. I have this important mitzvah. I have to go greet these guests, the three malachim. He thought they were Arabs. He went out to greet them. Please, Hashem, wait. And from there, Chazal learned out that Godel, Achnosus, <laughs> Godel, it's greater to welcome guests and even greet, greeting Hashem. How did Avram know that? Okay, so the answer is that the others were on such a powerful spiritual level that they intuitively understood Torah. You see, I have a pure neshama. My neshama was under the Kisei covered, and my neshama was put into his body, 
and in his body it's darkened and occluded, and I see nothing, I remember nothing, I can see two inches in front of my nose barely, because my heavy body blocks me. The Sadiqim of earlier generations, and suddenly the Avos, purified themselves, their body became less of an obstacle, less of a blockage, and then Hashem came more to the fore, and because it became so pure, they were able to intuitively understand things that we can't fathom. And Noach knew what was a behemoth Torah and a behemoth Tamea. He knew intuitively, instinctively. They say even by a Novi, and they say that a Novi could tell whether the animal was shechted properly or not. Why? It's a Tamea. Look at that, it's Tamea. Look at it. I remember by the Babasali. And Babasali was a very holy Jew. And he once was in his apartment and he said, Get that Sheretz! In the kitchen, there's a Sheretz! There's a dead Sheretz! Get it out of here! Someone went into the kitchen behind the refrigerator was a was in fact a dead uh, whatever a dead sheretz and he took it out because he felt the tumma in, in the in the apartment from from his living room. So we you know we don't operate on that level, but the others did and apparently Avram Avinu understood this. Hashem revealed it to him. He understood it from his neshama and realized much of Torah. The others kept all the mitzvahs afilu erev tachumim. They kept the whole entire Torah because they intuited it. They understood it just instinctively, intuitively. Okay. Does that answer? Okay, good. Okay, Shabbos. Okay, good. Okay, thank you, Ram. Okay, so once again, if you would like to get a copy, the ten really dumb mistakes, and very smart couples make, and Mitzvah Shem is coming out shortly. Hanukkah time really will be out. It'll be on the Shmuz.com as well as farm stores. If you'd like to join the Shmuz WhatsApp group, please go to the Shmuz.com, T H E S H M U Z dot com, and you subscribe. And three, four times a week, you'll get these short inspirational videos sent directly to your phone. If you have questions, please feel free at any time during the week, you can send them in to Rebbe at the Shmuz.com, meaning if you have a question on a topic involved in the Shmuz or anything, but something you'd like me to discuss at the coming Shmuz, you can just send it in to Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E at the Shmuz.com, R-E-B-B-E at the Shmuz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. And uh, just in the header, please put question or question for the schmooze, so I'll know to look for it, I'll know how to flag it, um, and uh, please feel free to, uh, to send it that way. If anyone has questions here, we'll take one last question, but it looks like they don't, so which is even better, because I'll actually end on time as I should. Again, if you do have a question, please feel free to raise your hand, or you could type it in. If not, we could just end. Again, I want to thank you for joining. I want to wish you a good Shabbos. Again, stay tuned for the 10 really dumb mistakes that very small couples make. Again, that book is coming out in Mitzvah Shem. Hanukkah time, you'll be able to get it on schmooze.com or at your local bookstore. And again, also, if you'd like to join the Schmooze WhatsApp Chizik group, go to the schmooze.com. You'll see a sign-up banner over there. I thank you very much. Have a good Shabbos and a very, very good week to come. Thank you.